following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. Now it is my distinct pleasure to introduce to you our guest speaker for the morning. Um, Carrie comes to us from Roberts Wesleyan as well. She has she has many hats she wears, um, but she comes to us. Uh, she is the Hazelton Chair of Ethics and Free Enterprise at Roberts Wesleyan. She is the professor. She's a professor in the School of Business and also helps students create and implement community development projects both locally and abroad. Uh, she is the author of two books, Cheap Love and Marriage Adventures, and she blogs at adventurecarry.com. Um, previously, uh, before working at Roberts, she spent nine years in campus ministry, and she has a master's in theological studies from Northeastern Seminary. Uh, she has been married to her husband, Irv, for 24 years, and they have three children and live in a 200-year-old barn in North Chile. Um, I, I am so excited for you to hear what Carrie has to say this morning. If you've been here for years, she has um, come and been a guest speaker for us before, um, and she's always just such a pleasure to have. So welcome, Carrie. <laughs> I'm going to get something else. (laughs) Hydration is important. Where did Anna go? Anna, am I messing you up by taking over your stool here? Do you want this? (laughs) Hydration. We'll pass it on. Cool. I want you to think of one of the hardest things you've ever done. It can be something you did last week. It could be something you did 10 years ago. What is something that in that moment you were sure you did not have the strength or the capacity to do it, but somehow you found your way through? As Christians, we're called to do hard things. When we do things that are hard for us, we grow as a person and we grow closer to God, or at least we have the potential to do so. Um, Some of the hard things we do are are challenges that we choose to take on, and some of them we have no choice in the matter at all. But either way, there's that opportunity to grow. Now, according to the New Testament and most of the Old Testament, we can expect a certain amount of suffering in our lives. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 and 13 say this. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Now, I don't know about you, But I don't often feel like rejoicing when I have to do things that are hard for me. So this passage offers us a unique perspective on pain. I also find it interesting that Peter starts these verses by calling us beloved. Because when we're going through a a difficult time, don't we often feel unloved and maybe even abandoned by God? So this is one of many reminders all throughout Scripture that that's not true. 
that we're not unloved or abandoned by God when we're suffering. This is why Peter reminds us as he starts these verses that we're beloved. If you go all the way back to um, almost the beginning of the Bible in Genesis chapter 12, you have God asking Abram to do a really hard thing. He asks him to pack up his things, say goodbye to all his friends and a lot of his family, and move not to a different town or a different state, but a whole new country. By the way, he doesn't even tell him which country it is or what the weather will be like or the food or the customs. Um, doesn't give him the name, just says, the place that I will show you. This is like when you were a kid and you were on a long road trip with your family and you'd say, are we there yet? Are we there yet? And your parents would say, you'll know we're there when we get there. It's kind of like what God is saying to Abram here um, in chapter 12 of Genesis. But he doesn't just ask him to do something difficult. He has this big ask of Abram, but he also gives him a really big promise that goes with the, the big ask of the hard thing he's challenged to do. So in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, it says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. Here's this promise. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. So he's got this big ask. He's got this big promise. And the blessing he says he's going to give has, even that, has purpose. So he's going to bless him. He's going to do this hard thing. He's going to be blessed. And he's going to be blessed with the purpose of being a blessing to others. Now, it's interesting because he's supposed to leave his family, but Abram maybe breaks the rules a tiny bit because he brings his wife, which I guess is logical if he's going to like, have generations of family. That will make it easier. And, um, but he also brings his nephew. Now, I don't know how many of you um, are aunts or uncles. Nephews are really special, aren't they? I feel like I'm a nephew expert because I have six nephews between the ages of three and 12. I have zero nieces, six nephews. I actually, yeah, there's a lot of test, like little testosterone when we have family <laughs> gatherings. A lot of high energy, a lot of wrestling, a lot of blood and band-aids. And um, I just actually spent um, the rest of this weekend in the Capital District with four of my six nephews. And I just found out yesterday that I am going to get to take one of my nephews, who is 12, on his first trip to another country, which is pretty exciting. That's going to be a hard thing for him to do. In fact, I found out that he has already saved up $200 to go. That's a really hard thing when you're 12. $200 is not easy to come by. So <laughs> he's going to do, he's going to bring his nephew, nephews who are precious, along with him on this journey to do this really hard thing. But he's also inviting his nephew to be a part of this blessing and then inviting him to be a part of blessing others. Now God makes good, starts making good on his promise to Abram right away in that he blesses him with material things. That's kind of the first blessing that, Abraham, that Abram experiences. In fact, by the time we get to chapter 13, both Abram and Lot are so wealthy 
that they have these huge herds, they have a huge staff. Um, so, you know, Abram has this, you know, all these herds and all these herdsmen, and Lot does over here, and there are so many of them that they're actually arguing with one another. Like, wouldn't you love to have these problems that you have so many, like, servants and people and possessions that, you know, everyone can't get along? And so in chapter 13, Abram says to Lot, you know, let's, like, spread out. Like, let's literally spread the wealth. And uh, you choose a location, and you settle there, and then I'll choose somewhere else so that we're, like, not all on top of one another and our people aren't arguing all the time which is what it sounds like when all six of my nephews are together. And it's hard to, you know, get much done. So let's do that. So this is in chapter 13, if you were reading along. And if not, I've got over 20 years' experience reading bedtime stories, so I'm happy to read it to you. Um, This is chapter 13, verses 8. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we're kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you go down, let's see, verse 11. So Lot chose for himself all of the Jordan Valley. I remember hearing this account of Abram and Lot when I was in college, and it has stuck with me ever since. Lot chose the valley. Now, it's interesting because when we um, talk about our spiritual lives, we talk about mountaintop experiences as being like those highs, those really great, exciting times. Maybe we go on a retreat or we go on a mission trip and we feel really close to God because it's like this wonderful, happy, fantastic experience. And then the valley is like, I remember you know, being in high school and then being like, oh, when you go back to school and you face challenges, you're in the valley when you have to go back to your life. Um, This story of Abram and Lot is actually the opposite. Lot chooses the valley because life is easier in the valley. Okay, that's where all the rivers flow. That's where the water is. That's where there are established cities. So there are resources and there are opportunities. And things are going to be great for Lot in the valley. And that's why he picks it. It's lush. It's green. Everything he needs and wants is there. So Lot chooses the valley. Abram chooses the opposite. He chooses to live in the mountains where life is hard. When we talk about a mountaintop experience, actually just yesterday when I was at my father-in-law's, the History Channel was like constantly in the background and um, there was this show about mountain men. And it was like them, you know, like trapping things and like this guy's got like a broken arm and he's trying to like go through the ice and he's trying to get this trap out of this frozen river with one hand and he's going to skin it and he can't feel his fingers and it's just crazy. It's hard. Life is hard in the mountains. For the past 13, 14 years, my husband and I have been taking students on trips to other countries and one of the primary places we go is Guatemala, which is really mountainous. And life in the mountains is hard for them. Water is difficult to get. You want to get, you know, like, like I always tell my students who um, wear contacts, like, make sure you have your contact solution before we head up into the mountains, because once we get up there, you're not getting any, and you're just going to be blind. Like, it's just not easy to get the things you need. The opportunities aren't as abundant. Lot chooses the valley, which is easier. 
Abram chooses the mountains, which are harder. He chooses to live a more difficult life, but it has a direct relationship to what happens in their walk with God and their growth as a person. Because we see right in, right in chapter 13, there's a warning here that the people in the valley are living really sinful lives and doing crazy things. And Lot becomes more and more influenced in his thinking and in his relationship with God by the, by the people of the valley and the lifestyle of the valley. It's easy. And he doesn't really have to depend on God very much because everything is right there. Where, Lot, where Abram is living up in the mountains where things are hard and he's got to depend on God. It takes a certain amount of humility to do that. If we go back to 1 Peter chapter 5, it says this in verse 6 and 7. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all of your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Now, I have a feeling if you uh, think back to whatever it is that you chose as the, the hardest thing that you've ever had to do, that there probably was some anxiety associated with that experience. When I think about one of the hardest experiences I've ever had, one of the hardest things I've had to do, I always go back to 2010 when um, I was actually in the mountains of Guatemala with a group of about 20 students. And I kind of have like a a work hard, play hard philosophy when it comes to mission trips. So we're going to be really busy. We're going to do stuff during the day. We're going to do things in the afternoon. We're going to do things in the evening. Like we spent all this money. We spent all this time. Let's like get a lot done. Let's do a lot of serving. But near the end of the trip, I like us like, let's do something fun, enjoyable. Let's also experience a different aspect of this country, of this culture, because there's more to it than poverty and difficulty. And I want people to have like a holistic picture of that. And I I want them to have a good time, because I think that's okay. I don't want to hyper-spiritualize just because something is hard. That's spiritual and something that's easy is not. Otherwise, I would have ironed my pants today. And that's... (laughs) That's hard for me, and I don't enjoy it. So if, if the wrinkles are distracting you, I'm sorry. I don't think that has implications on my relationship with God. You can judge me if you'd like to. Um, but I'm still wearing them just like this. Even if I was wearing them to work, they would look like this. So we're in the mountains, and it's near the end of our trip. And so what we've planned is to hike a volcano the next day. One of my, my favorite adventures, love taking students to do that. It's a great challenge, but it's also a lot of fun. Um, we're heading from the building where we were having kind of a, a community time to our individual buildings where we're sleeping, and it starts raining, and it, it seems like it's raining dirt. Like, our arms are getting covered in this black dirt as we walk from building to building, But it's not raining liquid, it's literally raining dirt. And we're really confused, and we make some funny jokes, and we go to bed. We wake up in the morning, and we find out that the volcano that we were just about to climb has erupted and has shot, like, like the the lava, dust, dirt, whatever, has traveled a 100-mile radius of the volcano and has just blanketed the country with this volcanic ash. Which, by the way, so we're not going to hike the volcano. (laughs) Canceled trip. But we get into um, Guatemala City. We get into the valley. 
and we're checking our flights, and they've all been canceled because this volcanic ash has gotten into all the mechanics of the airplanes, and they're not taking off anytime soon. In the meantime, a tropical storm picks up, like borderline hurricane tropical storm, and it's just torrential rain. And so what's happened is all this volcanic ash that is everywhere, covering everything, gets into all the drainage ditches along the sides of the road and clogs them up. And so now they have, it starts flooding. And there are fl- the roads are flooding and there are mudslides on the, on the mountains. And now tons of roads are closed. So we're not driving anywhere either. So the airport's closed for an indefinite amount of time. The roads are closed. All the major roads are closed because of mudslides and flooding. And then, just a mile from where we're staying in Guatemala City, a sinkhole opens up and a three-story building collapses into the ground. So, I have 20 students with me. It's one of the biggest teams I've ever taken. I also had a few alumni with me. One of them had just gotten hired as a store manager at Wegmans and was supposed to have his first day on the job the day after we got back, which is not going to happen. I have a couple, husband and wife. The wife is seven months pregnant, due for an ultrasound and a doctor's appointment the day after we get back. That's not happening either. Uh, This also just happens to be one of the years that we bring our three children with us, They're 9, 11, and 13 at the time. It's May. I've taken them out of school for a week. Now they're missing two weeks of school. I also have my mother-in-law and her husband with us. Right after we hear about the volcano, the tropical storm, and the sinkhole, we get news that her mother has died. So now I have 20 panicked students three extremely stressed-out alumni, three children who are grieving the loss of their great-grandmother and a little, probably not too worried about school, but a little worried. For sure, my husband, who just lost his grandmother, and my mother-in-law, who just got her mother, are grieving. They all gather... Oh, and my husband then gets sick. The sickest I have ever seen him. He gets food poisoning. He needs to go to the hospital. He's at the hospital getting treatment, and I've got a room full of 20-ish people all looking at me, saying, what are you going to do? What's going to happen? And I have nothing, nothing to offer. You want to talk about a humiliating, humbling, no confidence, no feeling like you have no capacity moment. That was it for me. I had no answers um, and, and really, like, if I could just, like, run away and hide, that would probably be what I would do because I just had nothing to give. And everyone you could just tell was looking to me for some source of comfort, strength, wisdom, and I had, like, zeros in all of those columns. All I could tell them was, uh, we need to pray. That was my brilliant solution. And I'll be honest, it felt pretty lame at the time. But that's what we did, because that was what we could do. And we prayed, and we, uh, we humbled ourselves. And I was reminded of one of the very first verses that I memorized in college, which comes from Proverbs chapter 3, 
verses 5 and 6, which says, trust in the Lord with all your heart, and some other stuff that I haven't memorized well enough to tell you. So I'm just going to make sure I read it so I don't screw it up, because that would be terrible. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he'll make your path straight. I had no idea what the path home was, or how to provide strength for these people. I knew that the Lord was going to have to do that. Now remember that Abram, that God called Abram to do a hard thing, but said he'd be with him and bless him to be a blessing. So we decide, okay, we're going to trust the Lord. We're going to humble ourselves, like we read in 1 Peter 5, and we're going we're to trust him. Um, we have that time of prayer. Everyone prays. It's really cool. It lasts like an hour. We decide to do some worship and just remind ourselves of who God is and what he's like. And then we start, you know, asking questions and talking to folks. And it turns out that we're staying in a seminary. By the way, we're out of money because, you know, I have budgeted a certain amount of money for a certain amount of time. That time is now extended indefinitely. Um, But because people couldn't fly into the country either, uh, there was space at the seminary that we could stay there for free. So that was awesome. It also meant that mission teams that were due to come in and serve weren't coming in. So we were actually able to pick up and do ministry for other teams that wouldn't otherwise have gotten done because they couldn't come in. Um, My stepfather-in-law, which is complicated, but he's very talented. He's a general contractor. And one of the teams that was supposed to come in was supposed to be building houses for a really impoverished neighborhood. And here I have a general contractor with me and a whole team of college students. We were able to build three houses in that additional time. It was incredible. I have a plaque in my office, like, recognizing us for this extraordinary thing of building these houses during emergency and crisis. And I'm thinking, thank you. You just gave us something to do other than sit around and worry. And I got a plaque. Great. (laughs) Lucky me. Um, I had two students who were artists art majors who the majority of the week kind of felt like, what's my purpose? What's my place on this trip? Um, I typically primarily take business students and we, we teach business camps and we do business consulting and we help launch small businesses to create jobs. And they kind of felt like, why are we here? Well, there was a church that had been praying for some ridiculous amount of time, 60 days or so, and um, that someone would come in because they had built a new children's wing and they really wanted all these murals, but they didn't have someone that was like, like had artistic skill in their congregation. And so um, our art students created these beautiful murals in this children's wing and they were like, this is an amazing answer to prayer. You know, we were put in this really hard position where we ended up being blessed because we got to do this incredible additional ministry and help people. And we got to be a blessing to others. And if you ask um, anyone that was on that trip, that was like one of the times that they felt closest to the Lord. This is what happens when we do hard things. It gives other people a chance to see God at work in our lives. And it gives us the unique opportunity to see God more clearly. Because isn't that what we all would like to do? Wouldn't we all like to see God a little more clearly, a little more often? When we do hard things, we get that experience. We get to, God shows himself at work in our lives when we do hard things, when we go through difficult times in ways that we really can't see him any other time. Isn't that true? That's what happened for us there. Now, I used to say that that's the hardest thing I've ever had to do. I want you to fast forward 
three years. So that nine-year-old kid that I had in Guatemala, um, he's now almost a teenager. My oldest is about ready to go off to college. I'd been working part-time up until then and was really feeling the pressure and the ability, honestly. I felt like, okay, I could work full-time. I, I have more. You know, the kids don't need me as much. Um, I, could, I could do more. And I'd started doing some writing and speaking, but it really wasn't making a, a ton of money. If you want to make money writing, you really have to travel a lot and speak. And I really didn't feel led to be gone all the time. I really felt like one of my primary purposes was to still help my kids through the like, difficult challenges, the hard things that come with those teen years. So I was like, okay, I enjoy doing this and feel like I'm getting good at it, but it's not making a lot of money. And, um, you know, I can't pay for college with, um, you know, books that I've written. So how, how do I make some more money? And I remember going to the college to see if there was like a full-time opportunity and there was nothing. And it was back to that trusting the Lord uh, with all my heart and not leaning on my own understanding because I couldn't see a way. In the meantime, one of those difficult um, teenage moments, so my oldest wanted to use the car to drive to school. This is uh, early June of her senior year. And, you know, she hadn't asked me in advance, which was kind of our policy, and I really, you know, wasn't sure if that was going to be a good day for her to have the car. One of the other ways, by the way, that we were going to earn some money was uh, we took on an international student that year, so we had a student from China living with us. So my oldest, I, you know, kind of disgruntledly give her the keys, let her take the car to school. Um, my youngest daughter and also our exchange student get in the car with her and they're going to drive off to school. So I say goodbye. I'm in the kitchen and I pull a box of cereal out from the cabinet and I hear this crunching metal. And I think, oh my goodness, you know, we got in this fight and now she's mad and she backed into the basketball hoop and now we've got like going to have a dent in our car. So my husband and I decide we better go check out what happened. So we run out. We don't even put our shoes on because we just expect to see, you know, like a dented car in the driveway. And we don't see the car at all. We see a school bus stopped in front of our house. We have a pretty long driveway. Um, and we don't see anything else. So we kind of start moving our way in the yard. And all of a sudden, I hear a new sound. And it's the sound of my girls screaming, which is a terrible sound. And the next thing I see is my youngest come running, screaming, call 911, call 911, get some help. And my husband has already run off ahead. And um, then I, like my oldest goes back, I see her walking up our exchange student from China, and she's got blood on her head, and she's got some cuts on her. My daughter seems okay. The next thing I see, just my heart is in my throat here because I see my husband carrying my oldest, covered in blood, just head to toe. And what had happened was we have some bushes at the end of our driveway. I should say we had some bushes at the end of our driveway. And she had trouble seeing around them, and they got T-boned by a school bus. So my oldest just took the brunt of that impact, and it flipped their car around and knocked it into the ditch, which is why I couldn't see the car or the kids at first. So now we have all three, ki- all three girls have been in this accident. Um, my daughter, who's covered in blood, is very calm, which scares us more. 
And she says she's fine, but she's obviously not fine. Meanwhile, our Chinese exchange student is freaking out, screaming, crying, calls her mother in China. All of a sudden, I'm like, I'm in trouble. <laughs> um, and, you know, we, we, the paramedics come pretty quickly. Uh, they're, they're most concerned about my oldest, Michaela, wanting to get her, but they order two ambulances, one for Michaela, our oldest, who is the one who's really seriously injured, and another one for Ivy, who does have some cuts and scrapes. Turns out she was in the back seat without her seatbelt on. So she got kind of thrown around in the car quite a bit. Um, and they're going to send two ambulances. And I have to choose which one to go in. Now, of course, I want to go with my oldest daughter. But I've got this girl here whose family is on the other side of the world. And she is freaked out. And my oldest is there saying, Mom, it's fine. Go with her. And then I'm reminded of a, of a verse in chapter 40 of Isaiah. Chapter 40, it says, He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. I honestly have no idea how I got through the day. Most of it's a, a, a blur. Um, I remember, you know, so my, my oldest um, broke some bones in her face, had to have some plastic surgery done, but no serious injuries, which is incredible if you could see the car. Um, Ivy just had some scratches, and, but we spent the whole day in the emergency room with them being treated, and it was really terrifying. Um, the end of the day, everyone slept in their beds, which felt miraculous to me. I remember spending a little extra time saying goodnight to each kid and just like sitting on their bedside and spending time with them. Um, it wasn't until everyone was asleep and I was getting uh, dressed, you know, changing before bed that I realized I had blood all over my shirt. Just didn't even notice, you know, just got in that mode of getting through the day. Um, but we were really shaken. And um, I remember thinking, you know, I'm so thankful I'm still planning a graduation party because I really at points thought I'd be planning a funeral. And I got a call two days later from my boss at Roberts and said, you know, um, this is really bad timing. I know that you and Irv have a lot on your plates right now and, you know, you're, you've got the girls recovering from the accident. Um, but I want you to pray because we're losing one of our full-time faculty and June is a really terrible time to lose a full-time faculty. And Irv and I start looking at the classes she teaches and what my skills are, and we figure out that I could do her job. And at a, a time that I'm thinking this is an absolute low for me, this is too hard what we're having to go through with the girls, um, God provides this incredible blessing where I get this full-time job teaching and doing what I love and have been able to do that for the past three years and pay for college and take care of the things and, and, and do the things that we need to. Um, and I just think it came through that time of trusting. You know, I'm, tr I'm trusting, I'm doing these hard things, I'm trusting the Lord to take care of the girls, and when I go in the, you know, this other ambulance, even though I want to go over here, and, you know, Michaela turned out to be fine, even though I was sure things were going to be terrible. It just 
I can't explain to you how real the Lord was to me on that day. And then the days leading up, and I just felt so incredibly loved by God. I felt so loved that they were all okay. I felt so loved that he would provide this full-time job. No one had any idea that this faculty member was leaving. And it was just the perfect fit for me. But it's still not the hardest thing I've ever had to do where I've had to rely on his strength. Um, I shared that we have three kids. Actually, Anna shared that we have three kids. And um, I always wanted more, but when you have three in five years, it kind of freaks you out, or at least it freaked us out. And we were like, okay, we need to put a stop to this. And then years later, we're like, maybe we shouldn't have done that, and now it's too late. So we looked at adopting, and adopting is expensive and long, and maybe some of you have experienced that or been there. And um, in the meantime, we realized that we kind of adopt kids around 19, 20. We have a a number of students who were the the mom or the dad that they didn't have growing up for one reason or another. Um, And one of those um, students was um, my friend Carolyn. And she had lost her mom in high school. And when she was in college, um, I became like a, a mom to her. When she graduated college, she moved in with our family, and she lived with us. And um, after about eight years of her living with us, she um, was celebrating Christmas with us, and it was uh, Christmas Day, and I was making Christmas dinner, and I remember her sitting in the kitchen and saying, oh, it smells so good. I'm really bummed because my stomach is a little upset, and I don't think I'm going to be able to eat this delicious food, and that's really annoying. And... um, She stayed sick for the next two, three weeks. And after three weeks, we're like, you know, you should probably go to a doctor and see what's going on. She thought she had the flu. But she was a kindergarten teacher in the city, and she didn't want to take any time off. So Martin Luther King Day comes, and she's like, I'll take some time off. And uh, I have the day off anyway, so I'll get some blood work done. She got the blood work done, and within an hour, the lab called her and said, you need to go to the emergency room. And you need to bring family. And the family she asked to bring was me, because I was the closest thing to family that she had. So we have no idea what we're going to hear or what we're going to expect. Our minds are racing, but we really have no idea. We get to the emergency room, and within 15 minutes, they tell us that she has leukemia and that she's got to spend the next month getting treatment to save her life. She can't even go home and like get... She's, like, worried about her lesson plans, you know, and she's like, I just need to go home and get my lesson plans so that I can be, you know, get sub-plans together. And they're like, you have leukemia. You can't go home. You have no immune system. You need to stay right here. We need to treat you immediately. You are really sick. You are close to death. And we are both freaked out. Um, I spent the majority of the next month just staying in the hospital with her. Um, Fortunately, that course of treatment worked. She went into remission. She was in remission for a year. Um, She had a relapse. She got a bone marrow transplant. It was successful. Um, It was miraculous. It was uh, an up and down road, but we were thrilled. Um, This past August, after a year, over a year, she finally taught a whole year straight in the city after recovering Um, she went and got some blood work done because she was going to travel out of town for the first time in three years. And uh, the leukemia was back for a third time. Post-transplant, which kind of makes it 
impossible to treat. And when she went into the hospital last August, the doctors basically said, we're kind of out of options, and there's not much more we can do. We'll try a few more things. They did another round of treatment just to see, and it didn't take at all. And by this point, uh, she's just exhausted, and she really wants to be done, and her body is done. And um, by this point, her extended family has kind of gotten involved, and they really want her to keep fighting, but there's really zero course of treatment left for her. And she looks to me, and and we spend some time praying, and she asks the Lord to give her strength, and um, she decides that she's going to go on hospice care. And she had made me her health care proxy. And so I basically uh, helped my, someone who was like a daughter to me choose to die. And it is definitely the hardest thing I have ever done in my life. Particularly with her family there thinking, um, I'm the bad guy for supporting her in this decision. Um, a decision that is the last thing I want to see happen is to, to lose this person who is a daughter to me. Um, but I stayed with her that, that last week of her life. Um, got to, to be with her and, and pray with her. Um, her faith stayed incredibly strong. Boy, she did an extreme, talking about hard things, she did an incredibly hard thing. And she just felt so blessed to be, you know, loved and surrounded by, you know, friends. And she just kept thanking us for our role in her life. Uh, she blessed us tremendously. I think one of the things that keeps me going is I just keep thinking of her strength and her faith. And, um, you know, she's not here to live that. And so I want to keep living that for her and for people to see God at work in my life the way people saw God at work in her life, even though it was hard. It's easy to choose what Lot did. Sometimes I think that we are trying to discern God's will for us when we're making decisions, and we think that the path, like wherever the doors are open, the path that's easiest, that's clearly what God wants us to do. But I think we see in, you know, in the Lot Abraham choice that just because something is easy doesn't necessarily mean that that's what God is calling us to do. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean that just because something is hard, that that's it either. But I I think we need to not be afraid to do hard things and to recognize that when we do hard things, that there's a blessing in that, that we experience God in a unique way in that, that people get to see him at work in our lives and we get to experience him more personally when we do those hard things and we let him enter into that with us. Boy, those nights in the hospital room where I'm just counting down the hours with Carolyn are some of the most intimate times I've ever had with the Lord. When I think of being in the ambulance I don't want to be in instead of with my daughter, boy, I was trusting the Lord in a way I never had before because I just had to trust him to take care of the, the, the person I want to be with most. When I had 20 plus people looking at me for answers and I don't have any Boy, did, did, did God seem big and real and true to me in that moment when he is the one that provided because I had nothing to give. As Christians, we're called to do those hard things. When we do the hard things, we're blessed by experiencing God in an amazingly unique way. And we're blessed to make others 
to, like, to, we're blessed so that we can bless others with that. I'd love to pray for you right now. Lord, thank you for providing us opportunities where we are beyond what we can do, where we're beyond what we know, where we don't have words, we don't have the answers, we don't have the wisdom or the experience, but you show up anyway. Thank you for being with us in our suffering. Thank you that we're not abandoned when we struggle. Thank you for choosing to be with us and blessing us. Lord, I pray that you would bless the people in this room as they choose hard things. I ask that you would bless them, that they would be able to bless others, that people would see you at work in their lives, and that their lives would change as a result of seeing how evident you are in the work that's going on in their lives. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for calling us beloved and showing it to us. In Jesus' name, amen. For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com.